0: So when I uh, started high school, it was kind of weird. I went to a pretty big high school, and there was a you know a lot of families and stuff moving in, and so they were building another high school, but it wasn't done yet. And so my freshman year, there was an elementary school also being built near our high school. We had I guess they, they called it the annex for the freshman for our freshman year because there wasn't room in the main high school. We went to an elementary school, so that was kind of fun, I guess, and the toilets were small and all that sort of thing. Um, they didn't let us play in the playground. I don't know what was up with that. Uh, but, but it was interesting. And so even though, I don't know, there's probably four to 500 of us maybe. Um, and so obviously, you don't have classes with everybody. But because we're all just in one little school, you do see everybody. And I remember when Girl Scout cookie season came, which I don't know if this fall or spring. I don't know. Um, all of a sudden, this girl comes in with, you know, freshman in high school with her Girl Scout-like brown thing on and like boxes of cookies, and I remember thinking, we're in high school. Like, we're all trying to fit in. Like, yeah, you can be unique, too. But like, also, you don't want to be, like, too unique. Like, because you, you want to fit in. You don't, be kind of, you don't feel like you're kind of too weird whatever. And we were thinking, like, that's, like, impressive. Like, she just don't care. Like, she's just going to bring in her girl. And so all of us were like, this is weird. But I'm sure she made a killing. Because sophomore year comes. We're back in high school, like the normal building. And Girl Scout cookie week comes. And here she is again. This time, she's got a cart. And she's pushing those suckers all around the school. And part of me, I'm like, I feel like that you're not supposed to sell things. I guess it's Girl Scouts. So like gave her a pass. And it was just one of those weird things. It's like, you know, good for you, but I I, I would not have the, the courage to do that in high school, right? All four years, this girl during the Girl Scout cookie time would just go through the school. I'm sure she made a killing, like and did not care. Didn't care what people thought of her. Didn't care what people said because she was on a mission, right? She cared about these cookies and what she was doing so much that she was like, I'm going to do this no matter what other people think. Like, I'm just going to do it. And uh, I think that's somewhat relevant as we're in this series through 1 Thessalonians where we see Paul, one of the main thrusts and themes of this book is how important and relevant it is that if you are a follower of Jesus, that your life and my life actually reflect that in some way. Not because it saves you or because God is angry with you if you do not, but because we are so moved by and enamored by Jesus that we want other people to experience his grace as well. And we're willing to live in a way that honors and follows him, even in a culture that might think that is somewhat strange. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's where we'll be today. If you don't, there's a black one around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. Uh, Again, this was written by the Apostle Paul and his companions uh, around 50 AD. So this is actually the earliest book that ended up making it into the New Testament. Uh, He had visited Thessalonica. It was a port city in Greece. It was a a capital city of the Roman uh, province of Achaia. In Macedonia, uh, and so uh, he had been there recently. Uh, in Acts 17, you can read the story. Him and some of his companions were there. They were eventually driven out. Uh, riots were started by some of the religious leaders who were uh, kind of didn't like this radical idea of Jesus' grace. And so later on, he sends Timothy to go check on them. Timothy comes back to him, and he writes this letter in response to some of the things that are going on in Thessalonica. And so uh, chapter one again, Paul is commending them for their hope and their faith and their endurance. Uh, that their good works has actually made the name of Jesus known throughout their uh, region, and he's encouraging them. Again, they have questions. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. They have Believers are dying, and so they're confused about Jesus' return or what that looks like. And one of Paul's main aims is to give them hope to continue to endure. And so last week, a little bit, he talked about defending himself, like why he was there. It was a common, you know, uh, religious preachers, like traveling, itinerant preachers, were kind of a common theme, especially in this area in this a- in a- ancient world. And so he said, listen, I'm not there to try to get something from you. And he says, you can examine my life to prove to you that I'm not trying to steal, I'm not trying to manipulate. And so he's going to continue that theme of saying, Examine my life, and if you're followed Jesus, examine your own life in chapter 2, verse 1. And here's what he says He says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without results. So their initial visit when they were, when they were there for a few weeks. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered, we were treated outrageously in Philippi. So they went to Philippi before they went to Thessalonica. And as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So again, continuing this theme from chapter one, he's saying that he's encouraged by the Thessalonicans' faith. He says this in verse one, that his visit with them was not without results. What he is saying there, again, is that their faith has been well reported, that God has moved powerfully and their faith has been reported, and God is moving. And so He says these things again. He's kind of recapping, if we're not familiar in the context. In Acts chapter 16, it's the story of Philippi, where He's there. Him and his uh, colleagues get thrown in jail because they're talking about Jesus and surrendering to King Jesus, not to the king of the Roman Empire or to Caesar. There's this massive, massive earthquake in the middle of the night, so they kind of like walk on out of there. And then they go to uh, 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 they go to Thessalonica, and again they're driven out um, again. And what He's saying there is that even in the midst of these hardships, these hardships happen. Again, not because we were manipulating people or stealing from people, but simply because we were trying to be faithful, trying to share the gospel of Jesus. And actually, uh, opposite of what we would think, that God is actually using it. He's actually using their mistreatment to spread the name of Jesus. And so he continues by saying this in verse 3. He says, For our exhortation didn't come from error, our message to you didn't come from error or impurity or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God and to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts." So again, he's defending himself continually here. He's saying Paul and his companions, they have pure motives for coming. Um, unlike others who would kind of travel around and try to trick people, manipulate people, try to gain authority over people, he's saying that is not what we came for. We didn't come for dishonest gain. And in fact, their hardships and their jailings were not the result of sharing a bad message or being in trouble for something. Uh, but instead, they were used by God. And, and even in spite of this opposition, again, his desire is to honor God over everyone else. Now, not in like the cliché, 21st century, like only God can judge me, which means I can do whatever, whatever I want and nobody can say anything. But he's saying in the true sense of the word, like our motives are pure. We're doing the best that we can. And God as our witness would actually, not that we're perfect, but would could actually say to you, like, we actually care for you. This is why we are here. And then he continues by saying this in verse eight, he kind of continues his defense. He says, for we never used flattering speech, which was a common theme back then for people. Um, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness, and we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Verse 7, although we could have been a burden, burden as Christ apostles, instead, we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. So again, he continues his defense. He says, We didn't come for flattery. Uh, we didn't come for financial gain. We weren't trying to take anything from you. Instead, what does he say? He came, they came like a nursing mother. Now, this might shock some of you, but I ain't never nursed. Like, I just, that's not a thing I've done, okay? Uh, however, we have two kids. Christine and I have two kids. And so I've seen this happen. And I'll just tell you, as an outside observer, that's hard work. That's hard work. Okay, thank you. The mother's in the room. We got one who's being honest. Like, you got a schedule. It's emotionally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. You're waking up every few hours. When you can't, you have to pump. I mean, it is just like, a, yes, you love your child, right? But your child ain't doing anything for you. They ain't doing any chores. They're causing more chores. They ain't making, paying any rent. They're costing you more money. Like, everything about an infant is a mother going out of her way, getting not much in return, but simply for the love of her child doing whatever she needs to do to care for and to nurture them. And Paul is saying this is the, actually the effort and care with which we came. Again, against what might have been the, uh, this, the typical kind of street pe- preacher of the day, said, that is not why we came. We came for your benefit. In fact, in verse 9, as we'll read in a second, they didn't even ask for an offering. Right? They actually came and worked while they were there to not put any burden on this new church and these new believers. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, I mean, we're eight verses in. Like, when is Paul going to stop talking about himself, right? And if you're not thinking it, I'm thinking that. Because I'm like, how am I supposed to preach eight verses? Like, what am I doing here? I can't tell you anything because we're not Paul, right? It's a lot. So the question is, why is he defending himself so much? Well, again, two reasons. One, in this culture, it was kind of assumed that if you were involved in kind of going around from town to town, that you were trying to get something from people and secondly, uh, because, I mean, remember, he has been jailed. And so not only has he been someone who's like gone, going from town to town, he has a like criminal record. And that's, you know, if you don't know him, you're like, that's kind of shady. right? You don't know what's going on here. And so in this culture, someone who actually actually does not have anything to hide would actually be going out of their way to share with you, to tell you, to, to answer your objections. Say, listen, this is not about me and what I can get. This is for you, right? In fact, we do this today. Like, you know, if you've ever been to uh, like the fair or some big events and you have these people like carrying the signs, oftentimes like these Christians and like carrying like these like really hateful signs or these street preachers and like yelling at people. Uh, I remember when I was in college, we had two on our campus at UNCW and they were just like posted up around campus and just like preaching, whatever. And here's the thing, I love Jesus. I think Jesus is the only way. And so I'm not necessarily against publicly you know, preaching, even though that's not really what our culture does anymore. But the problem was, they would be so hateful about it. Like, they would just assume people's motives. They would assume people, like, don't care. And so they would be, and so you would see these people, and what do you think? Oh, there's another one, right? There's another person. And so you have these, these ideas, or, like, think of, like, you know, the televangelists online. Like, I'm sure there are some, like, legit just trying to talk about Jesus. But if you ever turn the TV or stream or whatever late at night, and you see someone talking about Jesus, what do you think? They're trying to sell me some water from Jerusalem. Right, for $5,000 to heal my cat, and they're going to get rid, right? Like, you're just like, here's another one. And so Paul is trying to confront this. Like, this is the assumption when they see him. It's like, this is not why we came. Right, It's the automatic assumption when they saw Paul, Timothy, Sylvanus, whoever of these kind of traveling companions is here comes another one. So again, to us, it may seem that he's being overly defensive about his character and motivations, but in this culture, it was actually necessary to say, no, I'm not like those people. We talk about it here. I'll give you a couple other modern examples. Like you know, in the church, we talk about money. We talk about money a lot here at New City. It's one of our values that grateful people give. And we're not just talking about your time. We're talking about like your actual money. Um, but we have to like preface it. Like I'll say things often like I don't care about your money. I care about your heart. Jesus cared. Uh, I talked about money more than he talked about anything else. What you do with your money impacts your heart. And so it's a thing for us. But you kind of have to preface it because you know kind of the assumption is all oh, churches just want your money, right? And I don't know. Just to pull back behind the curtain a little bit, how you know how church world works. Like if we have a really good giving month, my salary does not go up. Up. Like, it doesn't impact me at all, right? We want to give because we want God's mission to go further. Or, you know, I'm a pastor, and so when I'm around new people, and eventually, you know, the thing like, what do you do? And I try to avoid the question as much as possible, and they find out, and like, they apologize for things that they've said or whatever. And it's like, and, like I've got to explain. You know, like, if you're a Christian, this might have happened to you. It comes out that you're a Christian, you're like, but I'm not like those Christians, right? I'm not like you know, the Starbucks guy on on CNN who's like mad that they put a Christmas tree on a Starbucks cup, right? It's like, I'm not like that, right? And so there's a little bit of trying to defend or trying to explain who you are. That's what Paul is doing here. He's trying to explain it. And so they say, listen, it's not about these things. It's about Jesus. And so he's going to do it a little more. Verse nine, he also says this. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so that we would not be a burden on any of you. We preached God's gospel to you, the good news of Jesus. We are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children. I am a father, so I can relate to that example, okay? As a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom in glory. And so here's the thing. In the midst of all of, of Paul's defense of his motives and in, in in who he is, he's actually saying that his credibility actually gives credence to the message. And his encouragement, again, is also to the Thessalonians, that how you live also gives credence to what you're trying to say about Jesus. Really, like the whole point of these first 12 verses in chapter two is that Paul's witness was effective... And you can see it for just two reasons. One, because the gospel was shared and spread. And it happened because of the motivation of wanting to please God and please people. That Paul is like saying, like, look at my life. Like, judge me all of you want. All you want is not perfect. But hopefully you will see my desire is not for my personal gain, but for you to experience the goodness and grace of who he is. And the result is that people responded. And so in all of this defense for himself, he's actually doing something that takes a lot of courage. He's saying, examine me. Look at me and actually decide for yourself, not just if what I said sounds good, but if how I lived actually matched up with what I said. And if it did not, then maybe what I said isn't true at all. And so again, I just want to raise this question that we looked at last week when we said, would I want others to follow Jesus the way that I am following Jesus? Because that kind of sees what Paul seems to be getting here. Would I want other people to follow Jesus the way that I am following Jesus? What Paul is saying, examine my life and look at me. And again, like last week, to encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, the answer to that question is not, absolutely not. I mean, you're here. That's a good rhythm. Uh, There's probably things about you that you kind of overlooked because we kind of always focus in on the the ways that we fall short. But what are rhythms and practices? Do I love? Do I forgive? Do I give grace? Not that I'm perfect, but when I'm imperfect, do I actually apologize to people? Uh, Do I ask God and ask for his grace and forgiveness in my life? Would I want other people to follow Jesus the way that I am following Jesus? And it's important for us to ask that question because the point of what Paul's getting at is this, that your life is a testimony of your faith, your life. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if you're not, I just want to invite you to sit back, hang out. You know, don't feel like you need to do anything. But if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, your life is a testimony. It is a witness. It is a demonstration of what you actually believe. Now, again, we all have different backgrounds. We all have come from different circumstances. It's not like if you've been following Jesus for five years, here's the boxes you have to check. and 10 years, here's the boxes you have to check. But compared to where I was before I met Jesus, am I moving in the direction of growing in my affection and love for him? Uh, I kind of think of it this way. Kevin, who's up here uh, leading worship, he was telling me about these videos that GQ magazine puts out on YouTube, which I don't really know why, because it's a men's fashion magazine, and they put out these videos where they take like, professionals in a given field, and they'll watch movie clips about that field in, you know, in the movie, and they'll comment on whether or not this is true and accurate and why they do things. Again, I don't know why this fashion magazine does it. Whatever. It gets a lot of views. That's probably why. And so there's a lot of other ones that do it now. So I watched two of them. I watched one by a, a retired Navy SEAL. And so he's watching these, you know, these movies of like Navy SEALs in action, and he's saying, here's all the things that are realistic, they actually do this, here are the things that are unrealistic, this doesn't happen, or he'll point out like their gear of like, here's why this looks like this, and here's why this, and as you're watching this, you're like kind of mesmerized, right, because I don't know anything about Navy SEAL stuff. Um, but here's the thing, the only reason that he can comment on that is because he lived it. Right? He actually knows, and not just from a textbook. Like He's talking about like, when they dove in the water, here's what would happen to the guns. Like, there are things that you have to actually experience to actually speak to. Right? His life, how he lived, actually gave him the credence to talk about it. And so it was fascinating. And then I watched this one by a former mob boss. And as I'm watching it and he's talking about things that happened, I'm thinking, how are you not in jail Like, the only way you know, like, how people do stuff is because you were there, and people are dying. Like, I don't understand. I'm like, and how did you, like, get out of it? Like, this is public. I I guess from what I took was, like, you can leave. I guess you can, I mean, you're excommunicated from your family, and you can leave as long as you don't, like, inform on what's happening. And the only reason that's my guess is because he said in the video, 10 years ago, his brother left before he did, became an FBI informant, had to go in the witness protection program, hasn't seen him in 10 years, and never will see him again. Right? And he was actually really sad because he also has left. But because he's, you, know, they just, you can't risk it, and he's like, it's, just, it's hard for me. And so he's talking about all these scenes. Right? And so they've got all of these. It's really fascinating if people who are good at specific things, and again, the only reason they can speak to it is because they lived it. Right? And so I was thinking, like, well, what's something that I do that I see in movies? Because I, you know, I don't do a lot of cool things that I can speak to, right? Uh, and so I was like, well, I, here's what, the first thing that came to mind was, well, I grew up, I played the piano. right? And so watching movies, you can tell if you play the piano, that they're not. Now you can kind of guess, like obviously they're not. And they never show their fingers, but there are just times where it's like where their, where their hands, where their arms are like how far apart they are. Like they're like down here, they're like, like here, like nobody plays like this, right? Or sometimes in movies or shows, they'll get close-ups where they won't show their fingers, but they'll at least like show their wrists. And I'm like, that's not how you, like that's not how it works. Or even like when I see people play today, like you can tell, again, as someone who's played the piano, uh, you can tell somebody who has just kind of taught themselves or somebody who's had at least some like training from somebody else and you can tell because of how people play with their fingers right and so if you're like completely self taught even if you're playing something basic typically you play with these three fingers you just kind of like do this thing, right? Because it's easy, right? It's easy to do this, you know. The problem is when you're like playing intricate stuff. Doing this is really limiting. And so, like for example, if I see someone like playing chords on the piano, something basic, I can tell if they've had training or not. If they haven't had training, they'll play it like this. If they have had training, even when the notes are close together, they'll play like this. Because this, because they, it's a little unnatural at first, but because they know they've learned, you play like this, and so it allows you to do other things. And it's only my experience that has taught me that, right? Or maybe one more that we all can, you know, agree with. Maybe the age and stage of your life, maybe it's more relevant than others. But I was watching the show recently after I watched this uh, documentary, and it was like this old, you know, 50, 60 years ago, you know, typing on a typewriter, and he's like pecking away, right? Any peckers in the house? Come on, loud and proud. We got one, right? Your office, well, you've been working from home, but in the office, like, you can tell. It's like, shh, right? Those of us that fortunately maybe were taught because computers became more of a thing, you know, you use all your fingers, right? Because you've been, so you can tell just because of your, whether or not you're a good typer, right? You can tell if you've been trained, right? And so all that to say, here's Paul's point. Your life is a testimony. If you've lived it out, you can speak to it. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it should impact how you live. In fact, this is a theme all throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, one of the two times in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how, how those of us who are followers of Christ are the temple of God. Here's what it says. Uh, it says, Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple? That the Spirit of God lives in you. Now, sometimes people kind of look at this verse and say, "Well, this means you need to be healthy," because that's, that's not what he's saying here. Like, yes, it's good to be healthy and honor God with your body. His point here is not that. His point here in First Corinthians chapter three is that before Jesus came, right, God's presence was in the temple in Jerusalem. Now that Jesus is here, all followers of Christ have God's presence and his spirit within them. And so instead of going to a place, followers or believers in Jesus now take uh, God's presence, God's temple, God's spirit out into the world. He's saying collectively how we live demonstrates we are the temple of God, that Jesus changes how we live, that we go out and again, if you were here with us when we did Exodus, you know we finished it semi-recently, and all the sacrifices and the and the and the adornment, all these things that the priests had to do just to enter the temple, it should cause us pause. That if we are representing God in culture and society, how we live matters. In fact, I would go so far as to say this: that it is anti-biblical to assume that your faith is only between you and God. The the scripture of picture of oh, this. The picture of Scripture <laughs> is that is anti... Now, here's the thing. Again, it's our culture today. Like, it's just a private, it's a personal thing. You can believe that and still be a follower of Jesus, still go to heaven, still be a part of his kingdom, absolutely. But in terms of practically living out your faith, all throughout Scripture, in the Old Testament, and particularly in the New Testament, that a faith is lived out in community, in the world, for the good of other people. Right? You are a temple of God in the world meant to invite people into God's presence. And if you and I live our own way, don't really care much about what God thinks about certain situations unless we want his favor for something, then we are doing a poor job of being his temple in the world. Right, it is anti-biblical to assume that your faith is just a personal thing between me and God has no influence on other people. How we live, how we've been changed by Jesus should change us bringing his presence in the world. Or maybe put another way, that if you are a part of God's temple, if you're a follower of Jesus, you will either build it up or you will tear it down. Right, it seems to Paul, seems to me that to Paul, there is not a neutral ground. And here's what we know, right? We do not drift into the things of God. Right? We do not drift into holiness, into pursuing Jesus, into pursuing justice, into pursuing love. Right, We drift into our selfish ambitions, into our self-preservation, into uh, paying people back when they wrong us, into protecting ourselves. And so if we're adrift, if we're on autopilot, it certainly is not going to be, to be building up the kingdom or the temple of God for God's presence in the world. Right, I think of it like this. this maybe this is a good example of how things are not neutral. Um, as you guys know, I'm a big Duke basketball fan. Right, And so what happens here is when, when people come come, new city, they're new, or when I meet people that are moving to the area, you know, I talk about how college basketball is a big thing, and you've you got to pick a side, and you've got like Duke and Carolina, and you have like the little brother NC State, but like they don't ever win, and so, you know, every once in a while, it's like, yay, but like, if you want to, if you want to like, actually want to be excited, hey, if you're a state fan, you know this is true, if you actually like want to be excited and not be let down, it's, they're probably not your safest bet, okay, they're just, they're not, and so what I tell people, what I tell people is, you got to pick, you got to pick, Duke of Carolina. And then sometimes people tell me, well, I like both. Or I'm going to pick for all the local teams. And you know what I think? You ain't a real fan, right? There's no, you just not. It's not like I like both. You like one and you despise when the Lord's house, you dislike the other. You lovingly just, with a righteous anger, push aside the other. You cannot like, but listen, if you've moved into North Carolina the past year, I'm telling you can't like both. You can't. Duke or Carolina or State, that's fine. But somebody, you got to pick. There's no neutrality here. It's right? a Paul. Again, if you're a follower of Jesus, there is no neutrality here. Now, again, I don't want to apply, apply this pressure that you have to be perfect. You do not have to be perfect. But are, do you have rhythms and practices in your life that encourage you to love other people the way God has loved you? If you are a follower of God, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are part of God's temple. And we will either build it up together or we will tear it down. And Paul's saying, look at my life and see whether or not you want to believe what I said. I mean, what a, what a, what a statement, right? To say, look at me, not in an arrogant way, but also in the ways where you, where you see me fall short, I, I want you to speak to that. Right? This is like, if you're not in a community group here at New City Church, that's like a great, this is a great avenue for you to have people lovingly speak into where you fall short, but also encourage you when you're in a difficult spot. If you're a part of God's temple, you either tear it up or you build it up or tear it down. And so again, we'll read the last section here in First Thessalonians, uh, starting at 13. Here's why all this matters, okay? So as Paul has spent a lot of time defending himself, saying, look at me. Here's why all this matters, again, for the Thessalonians as well, how other people are looking at them. Here's why this matters, verse 13. This is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the word of God that you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God. Which also works effectively in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered in the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. So what Paul is saying here is that the message that he has exclaimed and shared with them. Uh, is Jesus, right? Jesus himself is the word of God. It is powerful to change people. And Thessalonica has seen that, that God's spirit has gone out. People have responded to Jesus. It has changed how they live. They have accepted, they have believed, and they have lived it out. And so he's encouraged by saying, listen, you're doing the same thing. Imperfectly, you're following. You're falling short, but you have hope in Jesus and you are enduring it. Your life and how you live is a representation of who Jesus is. And so he is encouraging them, right? Their faith moved them, even in their suffering. Again, They're being persecuted. Uh, They're they're running into hardships. Even in their suffering, they they pointed people to Jesus and how they. Lived. Again, it's a little different, you know, historically than us today. I mean, everything in that culture. I mean, polytheistic, sure, but there were certain things that you had to take part in to be a normal functioning member of society. That if you were a follower of Jesus, you would stop taking part in. And so, certain uh, certain festivals that would require sacrifices to the gods, um, certain just like community get-togethers. Uh, really, if you put it in context, like neighborhood, get- like there is always like this part of processes, even if it was going through the motion where people would do like these sacrifices and these rituals. And so, you would have to pull back from a lot of it. I mean, you would be different. It would be hard. And even in their suffering, they are pursuing Jesus and they are making a difference. It reminds me, recently I read a book uh, called The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, Super long story short. It's kind of like an autobiography of her life. Uh, she uh, She was born in the late 1890s. Uh, in Holland, uh, her family's <clears throat> to her family, Chris, her, Chris, her parents, her dad was a watchmaker, and so they had like this setup where like the watch the watch shop was at the bottom of their house, and it was a couple stories like really small and thin, and and so they had always they had always people in their house. That were, I mean, I was like, man, I wish I could hang out with this family. They were awesome. Uh, long story short, World War Two happens. Uh, <clears throat> Germany eventually overtakes Holland, and so they're kind of under you know Nazi rule. Uh, the Jews in, in Holland start to become you know first they were just kind of like beaten and mistreated, and then their businesses were taken over, and then they were sent to concentration camps. And so Corey and her family essentially became part of the underground system to hide, like in their house they had like this room built so they could hide Jews. Uh, They would get these ration cards and try try to find safe places for them to land. And so, I mean, very extremely risky stuff, right? And so she's a part of this. They're doing all these things. Eventually they get found out. They all get hauled off to jail. Uh, her dad was like in the 70s at this point. I um, mean, he was just an incredible man, right? He dies with him being there for 10 days. Uh, they get like sent to solitary confinement, especially her because she was like considered the ringleader. I mean, just awful, horrific things. And they're there for months, maybe six to eight months. It's awful. They eventually leave and her and her sister uh, think that they're actually going to be released. It turns out instead of that, they get on these trains and get sent to Germany to go stay in a concentration camp. I mean, the whole thing is just super sad the train, like being stuck in there for like three days and like fighting over stuff. And then they get sent to this concentration camp and they get into the barracks and like there's fleas everywhere. I mean, it's, it's hell on earth is what it is. Right. And there's this part in this book where Corey's sister Betsy looks at her when they get to the concentration camp and they, and they pray. They, they smuggled in this Bible. It was awesome how it happened. I mean, it was just really incredible. So there's this Bible and they're like telling people about Jesus. They get to the concentration camp. Her sister Betsy looks at Corey and says, Corey, I want you to thank God for the fleas. And Corey's like, I, "No, I'm not doing that." She's like, "Corey, we're gonna thank God." And so she she right, so like she kind of reluctantly did it. And she's like, "How can we thank God for the fleas?" Like this is So they're there for a few months. They have like these work details. I mean, it's just super sad stuff. Eventually, her sister Betsy her health declines, uh, and so she gets sent. Uh, she starts to have to make socks for the soldiers and stuff, and they somehow allow Corey to, like, join her. Uh, and so they get sent into, like, the barracks, or they sent into this workroom, and their, their duty is to make socks, to knit socks. Well, there becomes so many of them, they get their section of it gets placed into the barracks where the fleas are. And they're like, so not only are they sleeping there at night, they're all during the day, well, they come to find out they can start doing Bible studies, they can start talking to everybody about Jesus, and they're not sure, like, what... They find out the reason why they could do that is because of the fleas, the German guards would not come into the barracks. And so she's like, man, how, how do you thank God for suffering? And what happens is, even in the midst of difficulties, their faithfulness, God is using it in powerful ways. Now, I want to say this. Like, that seems awful. And some of you are suffering some really difficult stuff. Or you know people who are suffering in really difficult ways. And so I want to just maybe preface it. Before, what I say, I want to preface it by saying this. That if Jesus is who he said that he is, if he is the king of the world, that if he died and made it possible for you and I to be, to be welcomed into his family, that one day, every follower of Jesus, not based on your record of how good you are, but based on God's perfect uh, imputation of his righteousness or the giving of his righteousness to us, we get to enter into his kingdom. And if suffering allows us to experience more of he, who he is, and here's what this means, that suffering is not a punishment, but it can be a gift. Suffering, see, the Thessalonians are suffering not because they did anything wrong. They suffer because they're being faithful. Right? It's not a punishment, but it can be a gift. Right? If, if Jesus is who he says that he is and suffering allows us to experience more of who he is, then it actually can be a gift on our behalf to experience him in ways that we would not have experienced otherwise. Yeah. Right? Now, Paul is saying this to them. Like, If you've ever had something difficult happen to you and well-meaning people say some really dumb stuff, Right? It's like, well, you know, God uses everything for His good, and like, and it's like, there, there's nothing maybe as frustrating as suffering. Having somebody who is not suffering say something unhelpful to you, right? Like, I can. But Paul here is not someone who is a non-sufferer telling you, telling them it's going to be okay and it's actually for their good. He's been jailed, he's been beaten, he's been he's been stoned, and not like you know the stoned, like like with stones like the, the bad kind. Well, I guess they're not either one's good. But like the real bad time, like when they tried to kill him, like bloodied, like had like a near-death experience, like it was on like. He is a fellow sufferer and he is saying with integrity, listen, suffering is not because you're a terrible person or it could, but it actually could be because in your difficulties that God is inviting you to experience more of who he is. This is what Jesus talks about when he says, what good is it to gain the world, but lose your soul? Like if you got all the stuff that you wanted in your life and you didn't have Jesus and Jesus is the way for you to experience the grace and mercy of God and not your effort. What good is it to gain the world, but to lose your soul? So Paul's encouraging them in their suffering to follow Jesus, to experience who he is. And in their suffering, they're actually making a massive tangible difference in their community. And so with that, we'll read the last couple of verses from today. We'll start in verse 14 through verse 16. He's continuing this theme again, verse 14. For you brothers and sisters became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. So where Christianity started, where Jesus was death, burial, resurrection, the Thessalonicians are now living just like them. Since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, right? They're being persecuted just as they did from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us. They displease God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. So there's religious leaders that are saying, hold up, if they're not gonna follow the laws and the customs, they can't be welcomed into this community. And Paul's saying, no, no, we're not gonna do this. Like, Jesus is for everyone. So as a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them. These leaders who are resisting people's, the message of God being sent. And so again, Paul here is referring to his first visit to them in Acts 17, where they were driven out, and he says, God's wrath is being overtaken. them. Now, the hard thing about these letters is we don't always know exactly what he's referring to. And so these religious leaders, when he says God's wrath has overtaken them, perhaps there is something that happened that we don't know about, or he could just be talking about uh, the ultimate judgment for those that reject God and kind of res- restrict other people from experiencing God. He's saying, you don't want to be those people. You want people to be, be people of grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And so really, if I could sum up what's happening here, is we're talking about allowing Jesus to change our life, in order for that to happen, we have to allow him, like he has to be a place in our life that we actually want to follow him. Or maybe put it this way, that our conviction determines our course. I would say at the end of the day, if you are convicted that Jesus is who he says that he is, it will change how you live. If you're not, then it won't. And hear me, if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning and you're still trying to figure these things out, here's what I want you to know. This might sound like, man, i got to go and do and live a certain way. You don't have to do anything. right? We live a certain way not to get something from God but because we've already received from God and we want other people to see and experience it as well. In other words, uh, we don't live out of obligation. We live out of a response. God has given us grace and mercy, and so we live in a way that it actually emulates the mercy that we have received so that other people can experience it as well. Right, it's like my high school Girl Scout cookie person. Right, she didn't care what it looked like, but she was so convicted of what she was doing that she lived it out. And so, this is not a call to like be weird or to be awkward or to like condemn people. But if you're a follower of Jesus, man, am I, conv- am, I fo- am-, am I convicted and, and, and am I, is he someone that I want to pursue? And if so, how is it changing my life? Right. Again, all of this goes back to the gospel, which is what not that God first, not that you first love God. That God first loved you, that He came on our behalf to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and it is in response to the grace and mercy that He gives us that impacts how we live. Listen, all throughout Scripture, how you live, how I live, matters. Not in a way that makes you be, not in the way that saves you, but it demonstrates: Do you actually know Jesus? Right, It matters how you and I treat people, how we talk to one another, and how we fall short if we encourage one another to follow and to build up one another in Jesus and Christ's likeness. The gospel is not about what you have done for God. It's about what God has done for you. And in response to that, we live in a way that as many people as possible can see Jesus, can meet Jesus, and grow in a relationship with him. Your conviction, my conviction, the things that matter to us most in life determines our course. It determines how we live. And so what we want to do is not out of self-will and obligation, like white knuckle it to follow Jesus, What we want to do is gaze our eyes upon Jesus, the sacrifice that he made, and through the power of the Spirit, allow him to change how we live. So that Paul might say to the church in Raleigh or the church in in New City, although we have sin struggles and although we fall short, we are a people that are pursuing Jesus. And as we pursue Jesus, Jesus, through the power of his Spirit, changes how we live. Let's pray.